Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Coming up, Garcia later, City. Tottenham hot-foot it to mid-table. And Kang's Cape superheroes. It's Lindsay Hooper here with the athletic duo of Charlotte Harper and Michael Cox. Hello to you both. Hello. Good morning, Lindsay. Well, guys, it's all going down to the last day of the season. I guess, you know, we're thinking it's going to be... Chelsea's to lose now but if we'd have had a magic wand at the start of the season we'd have wanted it all to go to the wire wouldn't we? I think so because you know those make for the most interesting and dramatic title races and this one has been tantalizing even though the conclusion will probably be the same as the last three years. (laughs) Yeah it's worth pointing that out. Michael in terms of relegation because I feel like we've ignored this a little bit in recent weeks do you feel for Reading and the situation that they're in? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's strange that it's going to the final week, isn't it? Um, at both ends of the table because it's obviously top against bottom and it's just difficult to see Chelsea not beating Reading. And of course, Chelsea not beating Reading is the only way that uh, anyone else can win the title or the only way that um, Reading won't go down. So I don't know, kind of to refer back to your previous question, I almost think wish things had been settled yesterday. I just think the top four playing against each other. It was such a great day. It would have been kind of nice to have some kind of decisive outcome from that. And yeah, maybe Chelsea taking their foot off the gas next week would have meant Reading had half a chance. But uh, yeah, as it stands, it looks like a bit of a foregone conclusion. Let's get stuck into the action that we did see then. It's a good cross here, and it is a good cross. Can it be a chance? Maybe it is. They've done it. Lucia Garcia for Manchester United. So Chelsea beat Arsenal 2-0 to stay top and United won the Manchester derby 2-1 to keep just two points behind them. But wow, United didn't half leave it late. An injury time winner from Lucia Garcia and the stripping of the shirt, the celebration, the roar from the crowd. Michael, we're not used to seeing players strip their shirt off in women's football for for injury time winners, but it feels like we're we're breaking new frontiers in all aspects of the women's game this season. Yeah, a bit of a, the Chloe Kelly celebration or Brandy Chastain, as it used to be known. Yeah, I didn't quite see what message she had on her T-shirt, but um, a, a huge goal. I mean, she's a, 
a player who, whenever she comes on, I think is really effective. I'm a little bit surprised she hasn't started more often this season. I know those who are in the starting eleven have done a very good job. But yeah, it was it felt like a big goal. I think if um you know, considering the circumstances of the game, City going down to ten, it would have been quite a failure from Manchester United to not take it to the final day. And even though I would say ninety eight percent, ninety nine percent Chelsea are gonna win this title, I think it was quite good for for Manchester United in general, that they did eventually win that game. One of the members on our team at Sky Sports, a different Sophie to our producer, Sophie, she was translating the message on the T-shirt. It was a chin-up message to a player who'd suffered an ACL injury, if anyone was wondering about that one. Charlotte, I've got to bring in Carl Anker here and your reaction to the fact that he's been going on to both of us for some time about Garcia. I've lost count, actually, of the times we've had him on the podcast and he mentions her. And then she becomes the hero. Yes, uh, Lucia Garcia had chances even before that goal, but she has proved her worth. Seven goals for Manchester United. And they always seem to come late on as well. Skinner has spoken about Fergie time and creating that for the women's team. And yeah, a really touching message to her Spanish colleague or teammate, um, Athletic Club de Bilbao, Marta Unzue, who suffered an ACL as well. She obviously had that one planned. So, and obviously seemed to have a goal in uh, her back pocket and waiting for that celebration to come. She'd obviously thought about it before the game. Well, in the words of Carl Anker, who said to producer Sophie, a goddamn superstar, then that's what we're labelling her for the end of this season. But you're right, she did have some other chances before and made it an impact off the bench. If you do hear the odd door banging or closing in the background, it's worth pointing out that Charlotte and I are at Lee Sports Village still after last night's game. Um, we stayed over. And um, yeah, I think there's some comings and goings. It's certainly not anyone slamming the door on the season yet. Still plenty to play for, as we've established. Uh, red card, I-, I want to hone in on that for a second, Michael, because we had two over the course of this weekend. The Ellie Roebuck one felt like it was a rush of blood to the head from her to come out of her area that far. And Nikita Paris lately has just been on fire. She seems to have this extra gear of pace as well to get to that ball ahead of Roebuck. Yeah, it was quite a bad decision. It just never looked like she was going to get to the ball first. And it's the obvious thing to say, but if you do that as a goalkeeper, you absolutely have to get the ball. Or it's just such a turning point to go down to to 10 players. Um, I was quite surprised Gareth Taylor afterwards said that it, it was, I think he described it as very harsh. Yeah, I can't see that. He also said it was a an orange card, which is an expression Arsene Wenger used to used to use a lot. But I would say it was more scarlet or crimson or maybe even maroon. It's basically the reddest red card I think you'll ever see. But yeah, to be fair, City copes pretty well after that. With a young goalkeeper coming on, I don't think Manchester United t- uh, tested her enough. And they kept the shape well and, and battled back into the game. But yeah, it was always going to be very difficult for them to actually win the game. Uh, after that red card and and them obviously you know we're talking about it from United's perspective but it's quite a bad result for City now you know the chance of them getting into the top three and into Europe are now very slim uh, I think it would take a 12 goal swing or something like that so yeah quite a damaging result for them. And analytically was it a case of City playing very well with 10 players or was it a, a case of Manchester United not really showing up in the second half? I thought City kept the, the shape well they were difficult to break down. I did think Manchester United almost just took their foot off the gas in the kind of period 
after the red card, I was surprised they didn't just go for the jugular. It felt to me like, you know, the way they started first 10 or 15 minutes, I thought they were, were going to blow City away. But um, yeah, probably a bit of both. I feel like United's intensity dropped a little bit and maybe they got a bit comfortable. And then when they did concede the, the slightly fruit goal, uh, for the the city equalizer, then they suddenly transformed and, and played with with maybe too much energy. I thought they were a bit too frantic, a bit too hurried and in possession. But yeah, I think looking back, they probably should have just maintained how they started the game and and put the game to bed. Charlotte, how about then Gareth Taylor and his expressiveness as well about a penalty that he felt that Bunny Shaw should have received? I know that Michael's talking about him being very animated about the red card. He was also animated about this. Yes, Hayley Ladd's challenge on Bunny Shaw, he said, was a stonewall penalty. Didn't understand why the referee didn't give it. And I have to agree with him. It looked like a foul uh, from where I was sitting. And that could have been crucial for Manchester City and especially their Champions League qualification hopes. Laurie Whitwell has revealed on The Athletic that Avram Glazer flew in on a private jet from Florida to watch the Women's FA Cup final. I can't imagine that Avram Glazer was at Lee Sports Village uh, yesterday. Even just doing that cost the club a quarter of a million pounds. It didn't include security and accommodation. And I think a lot of people are looking at this and the the cost involved and thinking Manchester United could do with that for their playing personnel, that sort of money. What was your take on that, Michael? And have you have you read Laurie's article about it? My first thought is that Lee, I think I'm right in saying it doesn't have a train station, does it? So I think a private no, jet I can, to Lee I would be... I can vouch for this. Yeah, it's yeah. a difficult place to get to. Um, so maybe I a think... private jet to Lee would be quite handy, actually, to be honest. <laughs> It would um, be very handy, a helicopter. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that does seem absolutely absurd. I read the the kind of initial thing. I thought, well, if he wants to spend that money. But the fact that it's club money, I mean, that is absolutely obscene. I mean, particularly given, you know, some stories I think Charlotte's covered as well about, I mean, some of the Manchester United players, some of the most valuable players in European football are really on not very good contracts and are basically constantly stunned by the fact Manchester United aren't really showing more interest in, in tying them down to long-term deals. A quarter of a million pounds, that is, I would say, completely indefensible, yeah. Yeah, and and to bring that into stark contrast, so the women's team spend 2.1 million on players' salaries. And then within the club's infrastructure, there is a column that's called Other Expenses that has over half a million in it, 563,000. I think that comparison just stings somewhat, doesn't it, Charlotte? Yeah, I mean, that soft salary cap is that the potential that they could spend so they could spend 2.1 million given their revenue and the Deloitte money report last it was came out in January was saying that Manchester United had made the most revenue of the women's games and you think on a batch is out of contract Alessia Russo is out of contract and we know that there still hasn't been an agreement reached there so it does make quite stark reading when you compare the two side by side Serena Wiegmann was also watching the match at Lee Sports Village. Do you think there was any decision that she would have had some some sway from performances in this game? Did Steph Horton do enough to make her think, I might take that experience on the plane to Australia? How about others as well that are in the England contingency? Nikita Paris being another. I think Maya Letizia, shout out to her. I mean, that challenge to deny... Bunny Shaw, or it wasn't a challenge, a block to deny Bunny Shaw was absolutely brilliant, superb. Thought she had a great game. Hannah Blundell as well. She 
coped very well in that left back position. I don't think Toon and Russo really covered themselves uh, with glory. And Ella Toon hasn't been hitting the heights that we've seen her. But in a England shirt, she seems a different player when she gets the service and she's on the ball more for England. Leah Galton as well was uh, was a a big threat. We know that she doesn't want to to play for England. She's said that uh, earlier this year. I'll pass over to to Michael on Steph Horton because he uh, he was chatting about her. He was chatting about her during the game and and the potential partnership with Alex Greenwood. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a particular proponent of Horton. For England, I think especially if Millie Bright is fit and that looks like it's going to be the case, I think it's probably not quite worth it. But if Bright was to be out, I just think the fact that she plays alongside Greenwood for her club week in, week out, and has been in good form recently, means that maybe there is an argument. Again, I wouldn't say that if she was going to be playing alongside Williamson or alongside Bright, but I think partnerships at at centre-back are really, really important. And I do think there is probably a case for it if... uh, if Bright was to be out. I think the other player who um, probably did quite well out of this game, forgive me for this slightly alternative answer, but uh, it would be Hannah Hampton in the sense that there was the England goalkeeper and the England backup goalkeeper playing in this game. Roebuck made a really mm. poor decision to get sent off and Mary Earps, I thought, got caught quite flat-footed for that City equaliser. So, yeah, maybe she was a little bit concerned about the, uh, the standard of goalkeeping in that game. We will move on to Chelsea now. They play Reading in the last game of the season. Man United will be facing Liverpool. Essentially, the title is Chelsea's to lose now. And this is exactly how Emma Hayes would have it. Charlotte, how much has this all been intended from Chelsea? This this latest run, the flurry of goals, the way they've managed to get ahead on goal difference and, and just manage somehow, even when they're not playing pretty, to win? I mean, a huge, I said this last week, the huge impact of Penilla Harder hitting her stride. Chelsea will have felt really hard done by that they didn't have her during the Champions League and out since November, but she has just turned it up at another level for Chelsea. But Gareth Taylor said it yesterday. That's the target that Chelsea have set. They are just relentless and consistent. But look at their bench. I mean, City had a very, very scarce bench yesterday and Chelsea have not only the experience but the talent and just that know-how and nows to to see games out and again Manchester United manager Mark Skinner said that Manchester United need the need those experiences they need the defeats to grow as a team and and Chelsea have been through that for the years gone by There's a few things for us to unpick from that, Charlotte. Michael, I want to bring you in on the tactical side and recruitment for Emma Hayes. She's had eight years over all the other managers to be able to get this recruitment right. She speaks to me quite often, actually, about working 18 months ahead. It feels like there's a meticulous plan to everything she does. And there's a justification, isn't there, for keeping hold of a manager to be able to get this sort of process in place? Yeah, that is true. I think it's funny with Chelsea. I don't always think their biggest name signings quite live up to the billing. I mean, I think Harder's had an impact at times. I don't think she's consistently shown her best form for Chelsea. I think Buchanan was a, a massive signing last summer, has been okay. I think sometimes looked a little bit uncomfortable, to be honest. There's others I haven't been massively impressed by, maybe 
Kankovic in midfield has, has not performed well in the, the big games. But it's the players who have been there a while who I think tend to peak maybe three or four years in. Um, I mean, someone like Jess Carter came in as a bit of a fringe player, wasn't playing much. I think last season she was exceptional and this season as well, has often done really well. I'd put Millie Bright into that category. I think she peaked probably four or five years into her period at Chelsea. And even Gura Gura Brighton, yeah. who, um, you know, is in uh, fourth season at Chelsea now. I think it's been player of the season. I think she's just been fantastically consistent down the left and was the best player in this game. The first 20 minutes, Chelsea just blew Arsenal away, really. And she was involved in absolutely everything down the left. I mean, Lauren James wasn't particularly involved down the right, but Reeton, just her ability to play combinations, her crossing, her intelligence to play through balls, the fact she can run in behind herself. And of course, she scored the opener with what I thought was a really, really well-taken half volley on the stretch and then played the free kick into the box for Magdalena Eriksson's second. So yeah, it's it's about new signings. And, and like you say, the long-term nature of it is that it's not new signings coming in and hitting the ground running and being exceptional straight away. It's, uh, it's maybe they have to get to grips with the league or get to grips with Hayes' tactical instructions. And then three or four years in, they're amongst the best players in the league. Yeah, look at the time that she took over Lauren James and introducing her to the starting lineup. And you'd think that she is on course for the next two seasons, hitting the heights of what she's got to offer. You both mentioned Harder. So worth pointing out that there is an eighth title in a row up for grabs for Harder. And you look at her previous club, she's just gone from winning at one league to winning to another to winning with Chelsea. And of course, Harder and Ericsson are leaving uh, this summer. Those announcements came earlier this week, just a few hours apart. And you could tell that they were visibly moved. Uh, they've had their final home game at Kings Meadow. Good all right, it goes in there. And Ericsson's there. What a moment for the Chelsea captain. A quick word as well on Arsenal in this one. Katie McCabe missing a penalty again, Michael. Um, this happened against Leicester. She's got all the swagger and all of that grit in in the way that she plays in open play. But should someone else be stepping up to fill the void of Kim Little with the penalties now? Yeah, probably, if he missed two. And I must say, I find Katie McCabe a slightly curious player in the sense that I personally think she's a little bit over-aggressive and a little bit dirty at times with the tackling. She got booked in this game for an unnecessary late challenge. And she seems to be really celebrated for that side of her game. And I know people do like passion and getting stuck in and the rest of it. But when I look at her play, I think there's an element of a lack of control, maybe a lack of focus. Um, and I don't know whether that you know spills over into missing two penalties. But yeah, completely missed the target, dragged it wide. So yeah, maybe someone else should step up from now. And, and there were those shots as well. I don't know whether you spotted this, Charlotte, of Jonas Eideval in the second half. He just looked defeated. He looked deflated as well. He looks really crestfallen. Arsenal have been hampered by injuries and, and not just injuries, but injuries to their best players as well. The only saving grace is that Champions League is within their grasps. And I think it's worth pointing out as well that obviously Arsenal are without their best players because of injury, but there's also knock-on effects of that. One is the fact that the remaining players have had to play pretty much every game over the last few weeks and do just look a little bit exhausted and clearly weren't able to match the intensity that Chelsea played with in the first 20 or 30 minutes. And the second thing is, I think Idaville's basically only got probably 13 players available yesterday that he could consider kind of 
proper first teamers. And of that, I, I don't think Catley was fully fit. And the other one was Lena Hertig on, on the bench who hasn't had a massive impact in a WSL. So he's basically picking the same team every week. And I can't really see any other system that that group of players can play in. I think especially now Leo Valti's out, you know, Marnham has to play the deep role. I think Emma Hayes probably surprised him a little bit playing the outright four attackers that she did. And Idaville, who I think is actually very good tactically, just doesn't have the options to be able to compete with that. He has to play the same way every week. And I just don't think that is, uh, it's not in his thinking. He doesn't want to do that. He wants to mix it up. He wants to surprise opponents, but he just can't with the options at his disposal. Throwing that forward, think about the strain on that physio, in that physio department. I mean, okay, you have two ACLs in Mead and Miedemar. That's enough to cope with as well as a full squad. But then to have that stretched even further with Williamson and Veen Reuter and then Valti and then Little, like that is a lot to manage uh, from the physio's perspective, as well as trying to keep a squad fit to last until the end of the season. Uh, and they've had other players as well that have come in and out of that physio room. When you think of Catley and Ford, um, they've had other players that have had injuries that have come back throughout the season. Even Sousa had some time out, didn't she, at one point. So yeah, it's it's been quite the turntable that they've had to go through. I would imagine that they're looking at that and looking at women's health in particular and how they address going forward the way that they manage it all. I think they've acknowledged that there's probably more they need to do. And when it comes to Champions League places, after Man City lost, uh, they trail Arsenal by three points and there's a goal difference of 11. It does feel like it's a shootout between these two to get that final Champions League qualification place. I would hate to think that this is the start of a decline for Manchester City when it comes to the top clubs. Yeah, I'll be honest. I thought they were going to be miles away this season. I mean, last year they lost their entire midfield. They lost Walsh, Stanway and Weir. I think they just... uh, yeah, they've done pretty much as well as I could have expected for for a side who who just felt a bit dismantled at the start of the season. Don't you think they've underachieved in the last couple of years, though, Michael? Given the squad that they had when they did have Walsh, Weir and Stanway that season, and this season, like they're not short of talent. I kind of agree with you. In defence of City, I'd point to 2020 where... I think they had a real chance of winning the WSL that season. Of course, it, the season finished early and it was decided on points per game. And it was that three-all draw between City and Chelsea where I think City missed a late penalty in that. I mean, if that penalty goes in, then City win the, the league on goals per game. And yeah, maybe last season they could have been better as well. But this time around, I, I don't think they've got a great squad, to be honest. They've got some really exciting attacking players in particular. But I, I don't think the midfield is anywhere near good enough compared to Arsenal or Manchester United to a certain extent. So I'd uh, I'd kind of agree. They probably should have won one of the last four titles, but yeah, certainly not this one for me. From the top to the bottom of the table, where relegation is going to be decided on the final weekend as well. Reading need to beat Chelsea to avoid the drop and send Leicester down. I want a quick thought on two things. Um, so you can fight between yourselves over who wants to go for this one. But we had the double header. Spurs beat Reading 4-1. First of all, some reaction to that and whether we think it was a success. No. No. <laughs> I think, you know, fans were leaving um, before the women's game 
after the double header we've seen in rugby how it doesn't work you know give women's football its own platform and the attention that it deserves and the space that it needs and it's proven time and time again that fans will come so I'm not a fan of double headers Mm, and the men losing, I don't think that helped, did it? They weren't going to particularly stay around bulks of the, the crowd from that game, having been so disappointed. And then to stay around for what was effectively a relegation game, I, I think it did feel a bit harsh. And also there wasn't very much advertising around this game at all, certainly from the women's side. Michael, I'm going to throw you in then for, for Reading. And it doesn't look like a very good position for them. Their final day mission is to try and beat the reigning champions and a team that have been just on a roll. It feels like a step too far. Do you worry for the club? You know, going down, the men's team also got relegated from the championship. They've already worked on limited resources compared to a lot of the other WSL teams. Could could this be the start of a decline for Reading and and certainly not a team that we'd expect to bounce straight back? Yeah, you do worry for them. I mean whenever it happens when uh, you know the a men's team gets relegated uh, the club always say it's not going to affect the women's team you know Leicester are saying the, the same thing at the moment about about their men's team and the impact on the women's team but it's difficult to believe that it's not going to have an impact long term and it's a shame because Reading I mean you know never one of the more glamorous WSL clubs but they always had a habit of springing a surprise I mean you know we fully expect Chelsea to to beat them next weekend. But of course, in this fixture last year, Reading produced a brilliant counter-attacking performance um, at the uh, at the Medeski Stadium or the Select Car Leasing Stadium, I think it's now mm. known as. Deanne Rose, to, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it was, a, I mean, a genuinely brilliant performance where they thoroughly deserve three points. I'm not sure they have it in them this time around. But they did often feel like a team who, even though they were underdogs, were never kind of overawed by playing one of the the big sides. So. It's a shame to see them go down, but it's been, uh, I mean, I do think there is a just an obvious lack of quality at the, the bottom of the league this time around. I mean, I think Leicester as well are, are going to be slightly fortunate to avoid the drop. They're on 13 points in, in 21 games and regardless of what league you're in, that's usually relegation form. Well, that is the WSL as it stands. Still to come, an update from Europe, so stay tuned for that. Lyon are champions of France for the 16th time. They beat PSG 1-0 last night with an 88th minute winner from Sina Brune. Since 2007, they've been champions every single year except for 20. 2021 when PSG took the title it feels so one-sided this league can this possibly be healthy Michael in your opinion when you do look abroad and you look at leagues that have runaway leaders does that benefit them when it comes to Champions League and Europe that's a really good question I think it's slightly complex I think in basic terms yes because they can ease up in the league and they can concentrate on the Champions League. And we always talk about that in fitness terms, but I think it's also a tactical thing. If you're only really having to prepare tactically for one game in a week rather than two, then you've got a big advantage. One slight issue, and I think this is probably more of a case in the men's game than the women's game, where basically the big sides are just very, very good uh, compared to everyone else's. You're just not really tested properly. I felt like that with Barcelona last year in the Champions League final when they played Lyon. I just didn't think they'd been 
they didn't look like they'd had a real serious challenge for quite a few mm. weeks and, and really that was the case so I do think it is a bit of an issue I mean I suppose again in men's and women's football we're, we're talking about a similar case here where we we talk about the English league and think it's more competitive than other European leagues but actually Chelsea uh, are going to win it four times in a row albeit they've only done it by winning the league on the final day of the season so they're not kind of really walking away with things every year so yeah I, I do think it's an issue and I do think the longer it goes on I think there will be talk of a, a super league because I just think regardless of what your opinions are about whether football should be contested domestically or, or in European terms or whether there's a pyramid or whatever the basic point of a league is to group together teams of similar ability and you look at the the points spread in the WSL for example when some teams run 11 points and some teams on 60 70 there's just massive inequality within these leagues and unfortunately Chelsea have more far more in common with Lyon and PSG and Bayern and Wolfsburg and Barcelona than they do with Reading or Leicester so you're you're opening a can of worms here Michael because we could go on forever I mean maybe this is one we need to put a pin in and come back to because the women's league is probably the best equipped to do this isn't it a women's super league when you think of the shorter season and the amount of games that are played, I think it's a harder transition in the men's game. And that was why there was all the fallout from it. There'd been a framework in place for many, many years that people have been invested in. That's not so much the case when it comes to fully pro women's football. So it's an interesting point you make. And I think we should maybe revisit that. Uh, what I will do, though, is bring Charlotte in about the fully pro side of things because in France that's still not the case and we look at WSL that made a huge difference when it comes to the competitiveness of the league as soon as it went fully pro other teams we did start seeing bottom beating top for instance over over the course of the last few seasons will that make a difference if they can do that in France? Absolutely so Jean-Michel Olas who's now the honorary chairman of Lyon now that Michel Kang has taken over and Philippe Diallo, part of the French Football Federation, part of their plans is to reform the league uh, with playoffs to decide the champions and the clubs who qualify for the Champions League, make sure the league is professional um, and attached to the federation by 2024. They have introduced a new set of criteria for clubs' licenses to make sure that they're aspiring to that top standard and have the specification that you have to have to to run a a pro club. Um, But I think that can only be a good thing for French football. It just comes way too late. Lyon and PSG have been crying out for this for years. And the key issue is that they need a better broadcast deal for these clubs to increase their revenue. And that is key. But there's such a big footballing culture in England mm. and in Spain, and it just doesn't reach France. Look at Leon, they're eight-time Champions League winners, and still they're outclassed by Barcelona fans at the Champions League final last year and have never really gone over or never sold out their, their men's stadium. And their training ground capacity is 1,500. So, yeah, France really need to step up if they're to keep pace with the European clubs. 
Yeah, it feels like Spain have gone ahead of them. And I don't think it'll be long before Italy do either, you know. You mentioned there Michelle Kang. Um, Leon have been taken over by her and she's making a new global multi-club women's football group as well. Our athletic colleagues from across the pond, Meg Linehan and Steph Yang, gave us the lowdown on this historic business move for women's football. Michelle Kang is going to be majority owner of this new entity, which does not have a name as of right now (laughs) um like to-do list item number one but when this this new multi-club global women's football organization starts it's starting with washington spirit from the nwsl and the leon women's team from d1 in france and the plan is to add three to five teams perhaps even as soon as the end of the year we can get into that in a minute And she will have 52%. The remaining of the ownership group is going to kind of be split between OL Group, the private and public versions of this company, which is now part of Eagle Football Holdings. Again, the details here are slightly less important. Just know that this is Michelle's, (laughs) Michelle's like whole project now. And it follows her $35 million ish takeover of the Washington spirit, which finally went through last year. So there's a lot of NWSL implications, European implications, global implications, stuff when you hear the high level over like what is first reaction to you just knowing what we know as of right now? I'm a anxious person who tends to worst case spiral, as you know, because I have a mild tendency to prep for like the apocalypse. I was like, eight to 11 years from now, we'll be doing a podcast on how this was the genesis of Michelle Kong's Super League. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is this sense of, you know, there is obviously some level of template here for her to look at and whether that's city football group right or red bull right this is not necessarily a new concept but what i think is really interesting is that all of these teams are going to retain their individual identities right when i spoke to her for we have a, a very long story with with kind of her vision and ambition of this is that every team stays who they are they're looking for teams with like history and community ties right like she wants every team that is under this global umbrella to be the best in its league so to your point we could end up in a world where there's eight super teams in eight (laughs) different leagues and then there is just a playoff at some point in the calendar here where her eight teams all play each other like the michelle kong annual like tournament (laughs) I was about to say memorial tournament, but I was like, <laughs> no, 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 that's not correct. The winners are in capes. And <laughs> if you're not familiar with Michelle, um, every <laughs> every lead image you will see of a story of this involves her. And she was kind of very infamous for wearing this yellow cape ensemble to NWSL games. But I, I want to also acknowledge, too, that, you know, obviously, I think as much as she can say, I don't want this to kind of change, right? The two teams that this is starting with, the Washington Spirit and Lyon, there is a sense of things will eventually change. And, you know, you hope that it is only for the better, right? And that there is still a plan here in the U.S. for a massive training facility for the Spirit ahead, which 
conceivably could be used for other teams as part of this. Lyon obviously has its own goals and ambitions, Champions League play, any number of things. But then there is this third party here right at the moment in the U.S., and that's OL Reign. So, Steph, if you want to maybe explain that for folks who maybe aren't caught up slash as much as I tried to explain it this week, there are still a lot of questions. This is how I understand it based on what I read and being like a simple dummy who does not do corporate stuff. I don't even watch Succession, so I can't. <laughs> anyway, it seems to me that this is like a stock deal, right? So they're putting in their shares into a, comp- a new company. So Leon or OL Group actually will contribute their shares that represent Leon, the women's team into this new company. Michelle will put her shares of the spirit into this new company. And then I think as you reported, there's going to be a firewall between her and anything going on with the rain and their ownership right for now stays with OL group. And so it's kind of like they're sequestered off into their own bucket. And like Leon and the spirit are in their like little friendship bucket. And then eventually there will be some kind of sale process where maybe they'll go back to being the Seattle rain instead of being OL rain. Yeah, I mean, Question mark. so this is, I think your assessment is pretty much dead on, is that we have known since April that OL rain were going to be sold, right? But also it comes at a time in the NWSL, for folks who haven't been following, where we already have two teams for sale in this league, kind of as direct fallout from everything that's happened in this league and the Sally Yates report and the NWSL investigation in Portland and Chicago at the same time also that expansion is happening. So we have like layer upon layer upon layer happening right at the moment. And now you have this sudden sale process of OL Reign happening. And this is a team that has kind of just such an amazing original brand, to your point, in Seattle Reign and the original badge before... It became what I affectionately mostly refer to as the Pringle eating a chip, right? There's, so there is a potential, but like this is a team that had to move to Tacoma and then came back to Seattle and has moved training facility. Like there's, there's always been kind of this big question of like, what would the rain look like if they actually had <laughs> like sustained ownership with a plan? And you would hope now that the new group would come in and and do that. So that's, I think, honestly, like for right now, kind of the most immediate pressing question of this. All right, let's think bigger picture around Michelle and this new, you know, TBD named umbrella organization. (laughs) It was a real challenge of how many different ways can I call an unnamed new organization something else. But there is a sense of this, in theory, should have global implications for the women's game, right? Yes. You know, we have obviously both seen and reported on Michelle Kong up up close for a few years now and and have witnessed, I think, also the drive in terms of her entry into this league was not a smooth one by any stretch of the imagination. And so there is kind of the sense of like, who is she? Right. Like, (laughs) you know. One of the things I asked her was like, are you surprised no one else has done this before? And she was honestly like, yeah, I am surprised, right? But knowing Michelle and having, again, reported, like, to me, it makes perfect sense that this is her. But if you're someone in Europe looking at this move, right, and kind of thinking, okay, on the men's side, we have all these wild Americans coming into this space, right, and not respecting our history and tradition, (laughs) 
Does this feel different to you? You're right in that knowing Michelle Kong, it's like, okay, I can kind of see like, yeah, this is where she was going to head. And her being surprised that no one else had done this before reminds me of something that Natalie Portman said when she was talking about her documentary and how she was shopping around for investors in Angel City. And she was like, we had this data that told us it was going to be successful. But people could not overlook their biases against women's soccer, even to make money. But she called it like people would be willing to overcome greed and self-interest because of bias like bias outweighed a desire to make money that's how strong it was and how stupid it was and her and michelle and some of the new investors coming in i feel like the vibe i get is they're not burdened by the trauma of the past where people aren't coming in having already run and failed in wps not necessarily failed but like run a team saw that collapse and so you know, once bitten, twice shy, but they haven't been bitten yet. So they're like, yeah, why shouldn't I aim to do everything mega, big, whatever? Also, the landscape's different. I don't want to deny that. But so Michelle coming in and being, like seeing this from a very corporate, ultra-capitalist point of view, in that sense, is not surprising that she did this and like matches with her statement about like, I'm surprised nobody else has seen it from this point of like, seen it the way I do, this kind of corporate asset sort of thing happening here. Should I guess there be a healthy sense of like, is this the right move globally for women's she, football? She might be, I mean, this could be an, a, an interesting case study because she said that obviously we mentioned she's looking to add others to her portfolio. She wants it to be international, you know, countries uh, in Asia or in the global South. It could mean maybe a team in Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, her like Korea, maybe she's interested in that. I don't know. These places all have such different footballing histories when it comes to their women, like aside from the overlap of like women's football being treated kind of terribly everywhere, but like, you know, unique to each country's history and culture and like the development of their leagues are all at incredibly different areas. So I feel like this is a question that's so hard to answer I don't know. I just feel like I don't have a finger on the pulse of what's going on anymore because the moment I saw expansion fees skyrocket to 50 million, I was like, everyone has lost the plot, including me. What happened? It went from 5 million around KC to 50 million in a couple of years. What? Yeah, again, the, the fact that we're going to be talking about an OL rain sale where they came in at 3.51 million and this could potentially sell for north of $50 million, right? Like there is... The sense, and and this was, I think, something that I kept trying to bring up with Michelle when I spoke to her, is that sometimes it feels like the money's coming in faster than the infrastructure is. And that was, I think, one of her really, the points that she felt most strongly about is that, you know, when she's now looking to hire people, she's feeling like there aren't enough coaches to go around. There aren't enough trainers to go around. There aren't, you know, the technical staff part of it needs development. And this is also where she views a global entity in this can offer something to developing talent in these areas as well. And it goes to players, it goes to business staff as well. But there is, I think, I don't know, it's going to be a really interesting thing to watch, right? And just in terms of with any owner, I think it's healthy to kind of have an inherent we're going to be watching the balance of clearly you want to make money and you should want to make money right if you're putting in this level of investment but also 
without sacrificing history or community or the identity of these clubs. And so far, I think she's saying all of the right things, but that's that's different than watching it happen over the next year plus. I think you and I have definitely talked about worrying that things are expanding faster than the infrastructure can handle. We've seen it already encapsulated right now, where you look at the quality of refereeing in NBSL. There's just not enough referees at the right level, with the right experience. I think it's been getting kind of gradually better, but there, that still requires a ton more investment into that infrastructure. And I'm trying to balance what I just talked about, where if you've been in this long enough, you do have some like emotional baggage around being, oh, maybe we shouldn't do this so fast. And then thinking, okay, maybe I'm like a little bit too cautious. And this is like the market correcting for years of like growth being artificially suppressed by people, like we just said with Natalie Portman saying, people overlooking greed and self-interest because they couldn't see like this, this could be a winning value proposition, right? So I'm trying to balance that against thinking, okay, maybe maybe it is the right valuation versus seeing the reality of like, but we see like the infrastructure is really struggling to catch up. I cannot tell right now. It feels so wild, wild west. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. And now (laughs) the wild, wild west is the entirety of the world for (laughs) Michelle Kong. So I think we'll just basically keep covering and, and really just have to see move by move how it plays out. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. One for us to watch there from Meg and Steph. Uh, that's it for this week's Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Charlotte, Michael, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Lindsay. And thank you as well to producer Sophie for putting all this one together. We haven't got many to go. We're on the home straight. Thank you for listening. Keep with us until the very end of the season. Uh, We'll see you next week for the grand finale. Goodbye. The Athletic.